Uh, God is good. And um, this sounds kind of maybe pandering because I'm in charge of overseeing the worship team, but don't, doesn't the worship team do a great job? Um, and we, <laughs> um, we never tell them, believe it or not, we never tell them what songs to do. Uh, but every time I feel like, man, they're, they're pre- like, like you could just go home because they're preaching the same message that we are from the text, and God is so good. Um, I hope that, that, uh, that we have all been, uh, been blessed so far, and again, I want to pause and welcome those of you joining us online. Um, uh, as PV has been bringing us through the book of, of Joshua, it can be challenging uh, for, for those of us, um, if, if you're like me, you've been kind of raised in the church, you know, you've... You've heard a lot of these stories over and over again, and, and uh, you know, you've, you've seen the flannel graph, right? You've, you've sang the songs, and so when we return to passages uh, like what we're doing today in Joshua chapter 6, sometimes our, our brains go into autopilot, right? Um, sometimes we just think, okay, I know how this story goes. This is what happens first, and then this, and this is how I apply this story. This is how God's taught me in the past. I've got it. And, and it's easy for us to kind of tune out. It's easy for us to to rely on yesterday's manna, right? But, oh my gosh, the Word of God is so rich, and the Word of God is so deep, and there's, there's a treasure trove of wisdom and blessing, and I can't tell you guys how many times God's brought me back to us, the same passage over and over again, and, and each time he, he redeems something fresh out of that for me, and he keeps me humble, for one thing. It reminds me all the time I can't, I can't rely on myself, but it's also a testimony to his faithfulness. And so I challenge all of us this morning that, that we would listen with fresh ears, we would read with fresh eyes. Um, um, like I said at the beginning, I've, I've appreciated how Pastor Victor has, and I, would, I think he would say by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, has, has brought us to, to, this, uh, the, to, uh, to approaching the book of Joshua, and not just the book of Joshua, but approaching the entering of the promised land, the receiving of the promised land, and how that looks in the life of a, of, of a new covenant believer. Um, because so often we think, um, once, I've, once I've reached the promised land, then I'm done, right? Once I've reached the promised land, then, then here we are, we've arrived, now we can sit back and relax, okay? But in reality, it's when you enter the promised land of God's promises and his salvation that the battle truly begins, and so, as PV has been pointing out, um, there's a difference between uh, God uh, giving his people the promised land and then the call to continually possess the promised land. And I think, in, um, at least as I reflect in my life, there is a difference, and certainly there is this ongoing uh, act of obedience. It's not, it's not salvation by works, right? It's not in our own strengths, but it's responding to a call to obedience uh, that, that leads us into ongoing victory and ongoing possession of the promises. And so um, that's what I hope we will continue to see today. Like I said, I'm grateful that that foundation has already been laid. Uh, the fall of Jericho and Joshua chapter 6 might be one of the most familiar Old Testament accounts for a lot of us. Uh, and so, again, my, my challenge is that you um, open up your hearts and your minds to to whatever God may have for you for today. You know, forget, uh, don't fully forget, but you know, I try to forget what assumptions you bring to it uh, because today I hope we will see uh, that God does have promises for the believer in this life. He's already won those promises and given us those promises by his Son and by the Holy Spirit, but that it is only through obedient faithfulness, complete obedience, that we can take full possession of them. I want to offer a quick disclaimer before we jump in. You're going to hear me refer to this idea of complete obedience regularly in this, in this study. And there, the, uh, for a lot of us, when, when we hear about or when we study about our responsibility that Scripture calls us to, that God calls us to, and we talk about things like obedience, um, 
immediately we, our, our, our defenses go up and, 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 and maybe we think, oh, so God expects me to be perfect, right? And, and that's, that's sort of the, the, the reaction of the skeptic or the reaction of the one who wants to resist the word of God. Well, I can't be perfect. And so I want to make a clear distinction. God does not, God does not expect perfection from his people. He expects obedience. And even in imperfection, we can be obedient. Even when we do make mistakes, even when we do fall short, God has known that from eternity past about us, and he calls us anyway. Isn't that the glory? That's just the, the, the blessing of being called by God, that every mistake, every, every uh, um, overcoming of the flesh that, that you slip back into, God knew that long before it ever happened, and he calls you anyway. Okay, so it's not about perfection. Okay, it's about obedience. Okay, so... Let's jump in, uh, Joshua chapter 6. And again, just a little bit of context from where we left off before. The children of Israel, they are on the doorstep of Jericho. They have crossed over the Jordan River, um, not with a bridge, uh, not with boats, but because God said so, because God held the waters uh, apart and they crossed through on dry land. Uh, and so they are at the doorstep of Jericho. They have just consecrated themselves to the Lord. This whole new generation of Israelites, all the old generation had died off. This new generation um, uh, were going to carry forward the promises of God. But before they could do that, they had to reconsecrate themselves to God. They had to be reminded of the covenant, reminded of God's promises. And now here they are on the threshold of, of battle, although I would say the word battle is kind of a a misnomer is kind of a strong term for what's about to happen because there's no real physical battle, right? Um, it reminds me of that song. He has no, no, okay, so when, 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 I, when I say Joshua and Jericho and I say there's a song about that, what song do you guys immediately think about? If you're like old school, what do you think about? I'm not asking you to sing it. You can just tell me what, yeah. It's so quiet. You know, I'll sing it, but no. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Okay, there's the head nods. You guys know it. All right. Um, you know, we, we sing that song growing up, and it's fun. Whatever. I, I don't want to like... But, but in reality, Joshua didn't fight a battle, right? Um, in, in reality, we know that there was no... Like, God just went forth, and he said, here's what's going to happen. And by his power, it, it happens. And so um, look for how that applies to us. Like, how does God fight our battles before we even have to get there? Um, so... Joshua 6, here we go. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. So before we get to our main point for this sermon, there are a couple of like kind of sub points I want to land on because I think they're important. Um, And so in this this first verse, again, we see that Jericho Jericho was, was, was poised for battle. They were on high alert. They were on the ultimate defensive all right, um, we, we read in the testimony of Rahab, if you go back uh, just a couple chapters, just to remind you, Rahab uh, lays out for the Israelite spies in Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 9, um, she says, um, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for, when, for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God, in heaven above and on earth beneath. And so there is this holy terror, this divine fear that has entrenched the people of Jericho. And I want to land there just for a moment because Scripture tells us, and there's an interesting comparison here, right? Scripture tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Right? And so, so, the, so the people of Jericho, they are experiencing this divine fear they have heard about, uh, and not just heard about, but, but clearly they believe, they, they've heard about and they believe wholeheartedly the testimony of the power of God, how he parts the Red Sea, how he freezes people from, from, from Egypt, how he, how he destroys these, this tag team of, of pagan kings that come against Israel. Uh, they've just heard about how God 
brought them across the Jordan. So it's not just, oh, we, we, we've heard stories about your God, but we, we've heard the stories and we believe. And that's, that, that should be a sobering thought for us because it's not enough to just believe. As scripture says, even the demons believe and they tremble. So they also experience this, this fear. Uh, but again, scripture tells us that God would use that fear for his glory. So it, uh, there's more than one place in scripture. I'm just going to read this. I'm going to read from this one passage. Um, in Psalm chapter 111, and you guys are going to have to bear with me when I flip pages. Last time I preached, I tried having a screen here for my cross-references, and it was just, it wasn't working for me. Okay, so I've got all these little tabs in my Bible that I'm not sure those work any better, but we're going to do it. So in Psalm chapter 111, verse 10, says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and a good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Uh, and there are other places where, where this, this, this truth, this principle is, is repeated over and over again, that wisdom, true wisdom, begins with understanding and, 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 and reverently knowing who God is. Now, a lot of times, we hear that phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And again, our flesh kind of reacts to it. Our flesh, it feels abrasive to us. We think, well, well, I'm not sure I want to follow a God that wants me to be afraid of him. I thought God was supposed to be loving. I thought God was supposed to be you know, compassionate and welcoming and all of these things. And, and he is. All right? But the beginning of wisdom, according to our Bibles, according to Scripture, according to God's testimony about himself, the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. Now, uh, just I want to take a brief moment to, to, to look at that because we know that, that this fear isn't, um, it's not this, this, this reaction to, to trauma or to terror or to abuse. It's not like, like we, we, are, we are terrified of God because, because if we get it wrong, he's going to smite us, you know. Um, it shouldn't be this paranoia that we carry with us into our lives. But we know that this fear that the Scripture talks about is a healthy, life-giving fear. All right? And we can understand that because we use the same kind of fear as healthy and life-giving and wise in other areas of our lives. Right? Um, those of you who have children... Um, how comfortable are you at the thought of your little children playing ball on a busy interstate? Does that fill you with fear? Yeah? If, if you're sitting there and you're like, no, I'm not afraid of that, okay, then you need to be doing some praying, okay? Um, any responsible parent would say, no, uh, my heart is filled with fear at the, at, 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 the, at the thought, the very idea of my kids playing in a busy street. And so that fear is, is responsible, it's wise, it's actually life-giving. Um, as, as, as hopefully responsible adults, we, we understand there are, certain, uh, there are certain animals that we don't reach our hand out to, right? Because a healthy fear prevents us, right? If you're in the presence of a venomous rattlesnake out in the wild, I don't know, some of you guys are like, that's an opportunity to like man up and, okay. That's not me, okay? I have a healthy fear, uh, of, of certain animals, and, and, and you can ask my kids. For, for me, it's always been sharks. I have a very, I don't, I don't hate sharks. I don't want them to die. I respect their role in God's creation, but I have a very healthy fear of them. Okay, these people that go into like shark cages and they're all like, I want to swim with the sharks. I'm like, like, what happened to you in your life where you feel like that's what, okay, I have a very healthy fear of these things. Um, if you grew up with loving, attentive parents, um, and and I've, I've been blessed to be able to say that I've, I, I grew up with, with, with very um, loving, uh, scripture-focused, attentive parents. All right, I had a healthy fear instilled in me from a young age. I've, I know to this day, I've always known that my parents love me. Okay, that's never. But there was. A, the, I also knew I did not want to get on their bad side. I also knew that that there was a very healthy, very life-giving fear for me as a child. Um, that, that, that kept me from a lot of pain, okay? Um, and it was healthy. It was good. And, and to this day, I understand and look back on that and realize that that was love, that that was, that was discipline, that was direction, very important. So, again, when Scripture says 
that fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we can understand that that, that, that is wisdom, that is life-giving, that that is loving. It's not this, this, again, this paranoia or this terror that we carry around with us. It's understanding who God is. Um, there's this interesting dichotomy in the book of Hebrews. Uh, in Hebrews 10.31, you turn there. Hebrews 10.31, it says... It is a fearful thing. Actually, let me back up to verse 30. This is not in your notes, George. Sorry. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. So understanding those qualities of God where he says, Ultimately, I am the ultimate judge because I'm the only one who's holy. I'm the only one who is all-wise and all-knowing. Um, and, and I will judge. There's a day coming when judgment is, is, is going to happen. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When we understand God's holiness, when we understand God's, um, God's justice, okay, uh, there's a very appropriate response in us that is a reverent fear. At the same time in Hebrews, we're told that we can come boldly before the throne of grace because of Jesus. And so there's this, 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 this tension where, yes, God wants us to be to, to, to know that he loves us, to come to him comfortably. He does uh, love us as we are and where we are, and he calls us into intimate relationship with him. And at the same time, Scripture says, but maintain reverence for who God is. Maintain reverence for his holiness. Let fear of God be the beginning of wisdom. And what we're going to see, what, what we've already seen in the book of Joshua, that for for Rahab, Rahab included herself in, in, in that description of the people of Jericho. She, she said, fear fell on all of us. Our hearts melted. So Rahab experienced that fear. But for Rahab, that fear didn't drive her into opposition against God. That fear brought her into wisdom. That wisdom brought her into submission to God. And in submission to God, she discovered salvation in God. Okay, so fear should lead us to wisdom. Wisdom to submission, submission to God, um, leads us to salvation. The rest of the people in Jericho, that fear, that fear drove them to put a wall between them and God and try to keep God out. Okay? So God would use fear in our lives to reveal himself to us, to reveal more of himself, and in the revealing of himself, draw us deeper and deeper into intimacy and dependence on him. But so many people in the world use that fear instead to, to, to push back against God, to say, no, I don't like what you're offering, what, what, what you say about yourself and what you say about me in my life. It makes me uncomfortable, so the walls come up between, uh, between us and God. And so there is a lesson even in the fear of the people that the people of Jericho experienced. So um, for the Israelites in real time and history, uh, the fear meant something else. Uh, the fear meant the people of Jericho were on high alert. Uh, most historians um, or, or you know, archaeologists who have studied these things would say that the city of Jericho itself uh, wasn't huge. It wasn't this massive metropolis. It was, uh, it, w- it was a decent size, but, but compared to how many Israelites there were, there were relatively fewer people within the city walls, maybe a couple thousand at most is what a lot of archaeologists would say. Um, but they, they never had to worry about opposing armies because of these walls they had built, okay? And so people from the countryside, from the farmlands, all the, all the Canaanites who were in the area would, 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 would flee to Jericho and, as Scripture says, shut themselves up, lock the gates, no one comes, no one leaves, no one goes, all right? Um, um, and, uh, and that's how they would secure themselves. And so for the people, of, for the children of, of, of Israel, uh, this meant that, that there was no surprise factor in their military campaign. They weren't going to catch the people of Jericho off guard. Um, they weren't going to be able to like, sneak in and, and win by their own um, trickery. Makes me think of you know, the, the myths of, of Troy, right? The, the, the Greek battle of Troy, and the, um, the Trojans and the Greeks are fighting, right? And they come to a stalemate, and the Greeks cannot penetrate uh, the, uh, the, the Trojan fortress. And so what do they do? You know, send in this, this horse, right, filled with soldiers, and, and they, they sneak their way past the fortress, and that's how they accomplish victory. I think I got that legend right. Um, 
None of that's going to be possible for Israel because Jericho is on a high alert. Um, And so that means that victory would have been difficult without that. But now, apart from God, victory is impossible because Jericho is ready. They're keeping watch. They they are armed. They are ready for battle. Um, The only way victory is accomplished now is by the will of God, and that's just how the Lord likes it. All right, verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. In verse 2, when God says, I have given, is that something that is yet to happen, or is that something that has already happened? What? Is that, is that future, or is it past? It's past. He didn't say, I will give. He says, I've already, this is done. This is a done deal. I have given them into your hand already. Um, I wonder how our lives, how our prayers um, would be different if we could see victory the way God sees victory. Because for God, it's already laid out, right? He has seen past, present, and future. He knows He knows what he's going to do because in his perspective, it is present reality. And because we don't always see the victory, it's not present reality for us. But I wonder, how would we process, how would we think about, how would we engage trials and difficulties and challenges and testings? How would we do those things differently if we saw victory the way God sees victory? But he's given us the same promise. Just like he told Joshua, I have given Jericho into your hand. He tells us in John 16, 33, Jesus says, uh, in the world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. It's already happening. God's economy, the overcoming, isn't yet to be. It's not, it's not like we have to wait till we die and get to heaven, and then we're overcomers, and then we can experience eternal life, and then we have all the promises and victory of God. No, it's a present reality where God says, I've already done this. And all you need to do is walk in obedience to it, and you can live, you can experience the reality of victory has already been won. Again, in 1 John chapter 4, um, it says, You are of God, little children. And, and in context, he's talking about the spirit of, of Antichrist that's coming and has already come into the world. And for some believers, when we hear things like that, when we hear about eschatology and end times and tribulation and Antichrist and all that stuff, we are filled with fear or at least anxiety of the unknown. The scripture says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. You have overcome them. Not you will. You already have. Because, not because you're that great, not because you're strong, not because you're mighty and wise, but because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Okay, and for the children of Israel, God's saying, the one who is with you is far greater than anyone on their side. I'm sure the people of Jericho were like, Did, have any of our gods ever parted waters? You know, uh, Their god parted a sea and a river. So he's parted waters twice in 40 years. When was the last time our god did anything like that? Right? Greater is the one with us. Greater is the one in us than anything we will face in the world. And so the victory is already present reality. It's not something we have to strive for. It's not something we have to hope for. And, 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 you know, work for, it's already been won. Um, to experience the present reality takes obedience. So, um, okay, uh, verse 3. Here comes the battle plan, right? So God said, here's how this is going to work. And just so you guys know, for the majority of chapter 6, um, we see a lot of repetition. In verses 3 through 5, God lays out the battle plan for Joshua um, then Joshua takes that battle plan to the children of Israel, so you're going to see repetition there. And then Joshua 6 lays out how the children of Israel did it. So we have like God speaking the, the battle plan, Joshua you know, communicating the battle plan, and the people obeying the battle plan. All right, so that's the majority of the chapter. In verses 3 through 5 is where we get the first, um, uh, the first version of this. He says, You shall march around the city, all, all you men of war, You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. 
But the seventh day he shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Okay, so that's God's grand plan for victory. He says, you're going to march around the city wall. You guys know the story. You're going to march around it one time a day for six days. On the seventh day, you're going to do it seven times. At the end of that seventh circuit, you're going to all scream like crazy people, and then the walls are going to come tumbling down. That's the plan, Joshua. Go do it, right? Um, and of course, to, our, to, to, to any uh, sensible person looking at this from a strictly humanistic perspective, this plan is, is suicide. This plan makes no sense. There's no strategy to this, okay? Uh, we don't know how far from the walls the children of Israel were, were marching. I don't think they would have marched very far from the wall because that would have just made their trek longer, okay? But I've seen movies. I know how things work, right? Uh, I know that, that projectiles and arrows are a thing, right? Um, and if you're marching around a wall of the enemy... And you're just sitting, you're not, you know, you're not engaging the enemy. You're just marching around. To me, that sounds like you're a sitting duck. To me, that sounds like the enemy from behind their high wall can just look down and throw a rock on you or shoot you with an arrow or, or something of that nature, okay? Um, but for some reason, they don't. Well, we know why, because God's in control. But in, in, in this plan, God's army is vulnerable. They're walking around. They're circling the enemy encampment, and they're vulnerable. Uh, not only that... But in this plan, there's a lot of walking, <laughs> and uh, uh, I'd like to think I'm in, in decent shape. There are some days that are better than others. Um, most, uh, most historians, again, would say that, that the circumference of the city walls was about a mile and a quarter of a mile, so just over a mile, right? Um, I could walk a mile. Um, I could probably walk a couple miles if I'm really trying, you know, and the sun's not too bright, you know? Um, Walking a mile and a quarter mile, even once a day for six days, that would get annoying quick for me. But I could do it, all right? Uh, on the last day, you're walking, what, almost nine miles, right? Um, no, wait, what's the math on that? Someone check my math. Right. But you're, you're walking, uh, eight, you know, seven, eight, nine miles, whatever it ends up being, okay, in addition to what you've already walked, okay? And, and, I know, like most people would say, you know, oh, well, you know, again, there's, there, there, there's that, that machoism in a lot of guys. I could do that. I'd be fine, all right? And, and, and maybe it's not that big a deal for some of us. But the reality is no one, no general says, let me wear my army out by walking. And I'm already there, okay? Let me wear them out, even if they're still ready for battle at the end of that. I'm still taking some of their energy for this. Let me wear them out before the battle. Okay, no one does that. No one in their right mind does that. So the people are going to be vulnerable, and they're going to be tired. And more than that, more than both of those things together, the people are completely out of, uh, they, 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 they have no control. They're, 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 there's no part in this plan where God tells his people, this is when you draw your sword. This is when you shoot your bow. This is when you attack and you actually fight. There's no part, so there, there's no part of the plan that's under the control of the people. God says, you're going to walk around vulnerable and tired for seven days, and then you're still going to win because I'm going to do it for you. It's not going to be under your control. It's going to be completely under my economy and my timing and my control. And then in verse 4, we see that the ark, which is, as we know, the, sim the symbolic presence of the Lord goes first. It says, and seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the, before the ark. Okay, so the ark goes first. Because it is God, as we've said, it is God who's going to fight the battle on the front lines. All the people are following him behind the ark. The Lord goes first. He fights the battle. If the enemy decides to attack, they're going to have to deal with God before they get to the people. Isn't that a comforting thought? Do you think, do you think God goes any less before us today, thousands of years later, than he did for his people back then? The reality that before the enemy can get to you in any way, he has to go through God first. He has to somehow overcome the presence of God before he can even touch you. All right? The victory's already won. Okay. Uh, if we look at verse 4 more closely, we see a repetition of, of a theme. 
Count how many times we see the the number seven. It says in verse four, and seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, but the seventh day shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpet. All right. Um, There are a lot of people, and I would caution you against this, okay? Uh, There are a lot of people who get really wrapped up in uh, decoding numbers in Scripture, and this number means that, and that number means this, and and, and oh my goodness, we just we waste so much valuable time and energy, um, you know, <laughs> looking for things in Scripture that aren't there. Um, but there are times where I believe God does use repetition. He does use a theme revolving around numbers to remind his people of certain truths about himself. We see that in Scripture. We do. Um, it doesn't mean that every single number has a meaning. I know people who, who feel that way. I'm just like, you know, you could redirect that energy somewhere else and be more fruitful, okay? Um, but we see certain repetitions. So like the number 40, right? Um, uh, the, the, it rained on the ark uh, in Noah for 40 days and 40 nights. The children of Israel wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights before he's tempted. All right, so we see 40, and it seems like, like whenever we see 40 in Scripture, God is reminding us of, of a time of trial or a time of testing, right? Uh, we see the number 12, uh, maybe not as often, but, you know, there's, there's 12 tribes of Israel. There's 12 apostles, and it's like maybe 12 is what is reminding us of, of the, 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 the people whom, whom God works through, or, or how, how God lays out his plan. Okay, so we see some repetition there. The number seven appears in Scripture over 300 times. I think God's trying to tell us something, you know. Um, and most, most scholars and theologians, when, when, when we go back and we look at all these different times number seven appears, it seems to constantly revolve around a theme or idea of completion or perfection. And when I say perfection, I don't mean morally perfect. I don't mean like we never make mistakes. I mean perfect as in lacking nothing. It's complete. It's whole, right? Uh, just a few examples. Um, uh, we learned all about, we were reminded all about this last week at the conference, right? There are seven days of creation. So, so six days God created, the seventh day he rested because creation was complete. It was perfect. God looked and said, it's very good. In the Old Testament law, uh, if you were unclean, uh, depending on what kind of uncleanness it was, but from a lot of them, there was a seven-day period of purification where you would set yourself apart and, 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 and purify yourself and consecrate yourself. So if you were a priest, you had to purify yourself before you could serve in the tabernacle. So seven days of purification until you're completely purified. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, in the book of John, um, these aren't numbered for us, but if you go through the book of John, you have these seven I am statements that Jesus says about himself. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the good shepherd, and so on. And so Jesus says, I am the complete and perfect uh, uh, image of God come down to earth. I, I, I am the perfect Savior. I am complete. In Revelation, the number of seven is all over the place, right? There's seven churches that John writes to, and this is like the, uh, representing the, the whole, the, the, the completeness of the church universal. Um, there are seven angels. Each of these angels has seven trumpets. Well, each of them has one trumpet. So there are seven trumpets, um, seven seals, seven bowls, and those seals and those bowls, and each time those are, are broken or poured out, God's wrath and God's judgment. And so that's the picture of God's complete and perfect wrath being poured out on creation. So again, over and over again, the number seven in particular, I want to read from Psalm chapter 12 and verse 6. My bookmarks will cooperate. Okay. Psalm 12, 6, it says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. God's word is perfect. God's word is complete. It is more perfect than the purest silver that's been refined seven times. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. Okay, so again, I don't get into like, you know, number codes and, and every number has to have a meaning. But man, the number seven seems to be important. Um, and we see it over and over again. And so here back in Joshua, God says, you know, again, you're going to have seven priests. Each priest said with a trumpet. So seven trumpets circling seven times on the seventh day. And I believe the picture here is twofold. Um, number one, 
God does not offer partial or incomplete victory. And God does not offer partial or incomplete fulfillment of his promises. He says the promise is going to be perfect. The promise is going to be complete. Everything I've said I will do, I will do. His promises and victory are perfect. And he sees them through to perfect completion. That's one part. The other part is that we must walk in, if I can stretch the metaphor even further, right? We must walk. We must, we must march forward in complete and perfect obedience. Again, I don't mean perfect as in we never make mistakes obedience, because even in our mistakes, we can be obedient, right? God says to that, that confession and repentance, that's all wrapped up in obedience. Even in our imperfection, we can offer um, perfect obedience. And so if we want to experience complete and perfect victory, because God's offering it to us, he's already accomplished it, then we must walk in perfect and complete obedience. What would have happened, do you think? We can't know. What would have happened if uh, Joshua had laid out this plan and the Israelites, their response was, well, do we really need to walk every day? I mean, isn't, can we just do three or four days? Isn't that enough? Do we need all seven trumpets going? That's kind of loud. It's kind of obnoxious. We don't want to offend anyone, you know. Um, How loud do we have to yell at the end? I mean, we're going to look crazy. Everyone's going to have a really weird opinion about God if we're doing all these things. What if we just offer partial? What if we just try a little bit, see how it goes? You know, maybe we'll walk around a couple times. If we see a couple pebbles falling down, we'll know it's working, you know. Um, What if the children of Israel had only offered God incomplete, partial obedience? Um, We can surmise what would have happened because we know that, and we're going to see throughout the book of Joshua, and if you study this throughout the history of Israel, that that became an ongoing trend in their obedience to God. Partial, incomplete obedience. And throughout their history, it means that they experienced only incomplete victory. Not because God's promises failed. The victory was already won. They were in the promised land. The promises were there for their taking but they experienced incomplete possession of the promises because their obedience was incomplete, right? Um, What excuses do we offer to God when we fall short of complete obedience? Um, Maybe some excuses similar to what the Israelites might have said. Does God really need all my time? Does God really need me to... To, to prioritize just him, or can it be him and something else? Can it be him and in uh, the well-being of my family? God wants me to provide for my family, right? So that means I got to, you know, split time between God and work and all of these things. Okay, what excuses? We know what Scripture says. Okay, we know what Scripture says about what a life dedicated to the Lord, what a life that is in pursuit of holiness, should look like. We know the grace of God, the mercy and compassion of God, that even when we stumble, he still lifts us back up. That even in pursuit of holiness, when when our imperfection rears its head, God loves us anyway. We know those things, and yet still we offer God incomplete obedience and excuses over and over again um, for why we don't follow through on his promises. The children of Israel, and I might be um, getting ahead of PV a little bit here, but um, by the time we get to these chapters, you guys would have forgotten this anyway, so it's fine. Um, we know at the end of Joshua, after all these battles that they go through, they don't finish. They leave it undone. They do not fulfill complete obedience. In Joshua chapter 13, verse 13. Because wait, what did God say to do with the Canaanites? Was he like, hey, uh, go make friends with them, and, uh, and if, they're, you know, if, if they're cool with you, you can be cool with them. Don't worry about driving them all out. You know, let them marry your daughters. Your sons can marry their whatever else. Um, is that what God said to do with the Canaanites? Every head should be doing this. Yeah. Okay, no. Um, what did God say to do? He said, drive them out. Drive them out, completely drive them out and destroy them. Because if you don't, then their practices and their ways are going to infiltrate your people. They're going to infiltrate you as a people, and they're going to draw your hearts away from me. And you're going to begin to worship other things. You're going to begin to think that life consists of things that are temporary, of things that are broken, of things that will lead you to destruction. They're going to be your downfall if you do not drive them out completely and worship me and me alone. 
And we know they did not do that. So in Joshua 13, 13, it says, Nevertheless, the children of Israel did not drive out the the Gershurites or the Machathites, but the Gershurites and the Machathites dwell among the Israelites until this day. A few chapters over in Joshua 16, chapter 10. I'm sorry, chapter, chapter 16, verse 10. It says, And they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites to this day and have become forced laborers. And then in Joshua chapter 17, and verse 13, it says, And it happened when the children of Israel grew strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not utterly drive them out. Over and over again, um, compromise, uh, partial obedience, incomplete. Um, And we know from the history of Israel that, that the things God warned them about came to pass, that these compromises were the roots that grew up into, into their nation being overwhelmed and overcome by inner division and outer opposition. Uh, they were captured, they were exiled, and, and, and they never regained the glory and the fullness of promises that God had for them. And it was because their obedience was incomplete. Complacency and complete obedience will leave us falling short of fully possessing the promises of God in our lives um, are there enemies, are there strongholds in your life? And you read scripture, you read what God says about them, and God has promised you victory over those things. And, and so you would say, yeah, I see where God says that, you know, I'm an overcomer in Christ. I've, I had victory over these things, but, but I just can't seem to stop doing this. I can't seem... To, 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 to get away from, from this stronghold in my life. Um, maybe it's because we're content to not fully drive it out. Maybe it's because we're content with just entering the promised land, just saying, okay, I've got my salvation. I've got my, you know, uh, my, my fire insurance, as they say. I've got my get-out-of-jail-free card. That's all I really need. I know God's calling me into deeper intimacy with Jesus, but I don't really need that I got other things I got to do. I'm saved. That's good for me. And and, and we're we're content to enter the promised land, but not fully take possession of the promises of God. And so strongholds rise up in our lives because we compromise, and they they bear fruit for destruction later on in life. And we find ourselves wrestling with things that never seem to want to go away. A few examples. Um, And I... I want to say, like, like, as I read through these, again, sometimes our flesh rises up, and, and your temptation might be to say, well, you're just being judgmental. You don't know my struggle. You don't know. Okay, look, I hear that, and I get that, and, and, and I'm, I have struggles of my own. There is a difference, though, between a struggle that, that, that regularly comes back, all right, and something that comes to define your life. Okay. There's a difference between an occasional struggle or say, man, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with it this week. You know, I'm going to pray. I'm going to rededicate myself to the Lord. And, 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 and the, the Lord, again, brings victory over that. There's a difference between a thorn in your side, like we talked about yesterday, um, and something that, has, that, that, that now characterizes who you are and that you're, you've, you've, you've grown content to just say, this is just my life now. This is what it is. This is the struggle. It's always going to be there. I'm never going to have victory over it. Okay, if, if that's where you are, then that is in direct opposition with what God's word says. Okay, so just a few examples. Um, you know, uh, uh, believers who, who are just in bondage to sin, and they say, oh, you know, I've got, I have this, this, this addiction or this temptation, and no matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I pray, or no matter what I do, it's always there. It's, it's, it's never going to go away. You know, I feel, I'm feeling like it just, it just has victory over my life, and I'm in bondage to this addiction. I'm in bondage to whatever uh, activity or behavior this is. I guess I might as well just accept it because it never seems to go away. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I'm going to say that again. I'm not done with the verse yet, but I want to say that part again. His divine power, God's divine power, has given you everything that you need for life 
He's given you everything you need to be godly. Through the knowledge of him, again, not through our strengths, not because we can overcome, but through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So God's word says that he's given, he's, again, it's already happened. It's not something you have to reach for or wait for. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. There is no reason why we should be in bondage to sin as believers. There's no reason why temptation or addiction should come to characterize the life of a follower of Jesus because he's given us everything we need. Now, again, when we offer incomplete obedience, when we hold back from God, when we say, I hear what you're saying, but I'm just gonna, I'll give you this much, God, and I'll keep a little bit of this for myself, then not because God's being vindictive, okay, but just because the reality of how his promises work, our experience of God's victory often has a direct correlation to how much obedience we offer him. We experience incomplete victories because we offer incomplete obedience. What about anger? A lot of people I know um, struggle with anger. This is a huge stronghold in my life for the longest time. And, um, and, and we know Scripture says, be angry and do not sin. Uh, we know that the anger in itself is, uh, is, is not the sin, but how we use it. But, I, but still, especially in these times, we see over and over again, like people just struggling with anger. Like, I'm so angry all the time, and, and, and I can't have peace, and I don't know... You know, what's going on? First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. You're never going to be tempted to be angry or any other emotion for that matter, but I feel like anger is really prevalent in our culture right now. You're never going to be so tempted to be angry and to act in anger um, that, that God has not given you a way out. He says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful. In your anger, in the height of your rage, in the height of your offense, when you feel the, the most deeply wounded, and that wound manifests in anger, in that moment, God is faithful. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You can never say to God, I was so angry, I just couldn't help it. None of us can. I was so frustrated, I just could not control myself. Okay? If you believe that, then you're calling God's word inaccurate. Because he says, I always give you a way out. I've always provided another option. Now, maybe you should have taken that option earlier than you tried to. Um, but the option's always there. The promises of God are complete. The promises of God are faithful. Um, I'll do one more, uh, just for time. So um, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What about in the relationships in our life? How often do the relationships, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's brothers or sisters in Christ, whoever it's with, how often do our relationships uh, degenerate into a toxic place where there is hurt and there is wounds, and, 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 and those hurt and wounds become resentment and bitterness. And then we get to this place where, where there, there is division, and we think to ourselves, this, this, this can't be possibly be overcome. We're, we're, we're so far apart, I'm so hurt, and they have not come and begged for my forgiveness yet, so I can't possibly forgive them until they do that. You know? uh, and there's just so much hurt and wounding here. This relationship is irreparable. Um, uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19, you would think this might be um, a, a, a weird verse to talk about relationships, but I feel like it's important. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If truly you are in Jesus, it's not that you are now a better version of yourself. That's not what Scripture says. You are a brand new person. There's a very real part of you that is dead. It's the part of you that holds grudges. It's the part of you that demands justice for your wounds. 
It's the part of you that says, until I'm satisfied, I will not forgive. Jesus has made us different than that. Jesus has said, that's the old you. And who you are now is not just a you know, more improved version of that. It's someone completely different. And that part of you that would hold on to that wound, to that grudge, to that hurt, to that bitterness, that person's dead. Um, he says, he goes on to say in verse 18, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. What, what, what does it mean to be reconciled? It means a healing in relationship. It means something that was broken is now mended. That, um, that God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's important. That that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses or not counting their sins to them. In other words, God doesn't hold a grudge. He doesn't impute their trespasses. He's not keeping track of, of our sins. If we're in Christ, all right, he's not holding the grudge against us and has now committed to us the word of reconciliation. Okay, so we're all about it when, when God is reconciling us to himself. And then that's where we leave it. But Scripture goes on to say, and now he's entrusted to us that same ministry, that same gospel. It's not an individual gift. It's not like only certain believers. All of us, if you're reconciled to God, he has given you and and me the ministry of reconciliation, and yet we have relationships in our lives, be it with family, be it with brothers or sisters in Christ, be it with whoever, where we would say, reconciliation is impossible. Like, too much damage has been done. I've seen this in my own family over and over again. It's heartbreaking. Because you know at some point, if you're a believer and I'm a believer, we're going to be together for eternity. <laughs> you know, this, whatever this is, isn't going to last. Why do we settle for it? Why do we live in that uh, when God has already won victory over it? Okay, we would go on and on, but we're running out of time. All, right, all these different areas where, where we would say, I have, I have this struggle, and it's come to define my life, it's come to define my faith, and God says, I've already won victory over that. All right, where's the disconnect? Um, is it because we've grown complacent and, we're, again, we're just content just to be in the kingdom, but we don't need all the promises of God? Um, is it because we have offered God partial or incomplete obedience? Okay, verse 5. It says, It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. When I was a kid... We had this, uh, we had like, like an animated version of Joshua and Jericho. I'd watch it all the time. Um, I think it was like Hanna-Barbera. I'm not sure. Maybe some of you may remember. Some of you. Uh, but I'm, I, this, for some reason, this scene is like ingrained in my brain. And I don't know why. Of, of when, when all the Israelites, they, 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 they begin to shout, you know, and the walls start to tremble and, and they, come, they start to fall down. And in my little like, you know, six-year-old brain, I, I don't know how I can. I, I just thought, oh, so... So, so it was the sound waves from the trumpets throughout the week that weakened the walls, and then God used the sound waves from their shout. I, I don't know how sound waves work. You know, I still don't. Um, but in my mind, that's just kind of how I figured it. I was like, okay, so, so that's how the walls came down, right? Uh, clearly, that's, that's the imagination of a child. Um, this was a victory shout. This is God saying, all right, it's done. Now Now celebrate. Now yell for victory. Now lift your voices and shout because victory is at hand. And the, 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 the key to this is that when they're ordered to shout, the walls were still standing. Okay? They had not seen the walls fall yet, and God says, celebrate anyway. And it's in the moment of their faithful celebration where they say, we still see walls, but God wants us to celebrate victory. We're going to do it that the walls come down. I think that's significant for us. We don't always see the victory from our eyes, from our perspective, the way we think it should look. But we always have reason and freedom and command to worship and to lift our praise and to celebrate because of what God has already done for us. I'm going to read through the rest of this chapter. Like I said, a lot of it's going to be just repeating these battle plans, so we're not going to stop nearly as often. There's one or two more things I want to touch on, and then we'll... We'll wrap up. In verse 6, it says, 
Then Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of rams, of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. So they're following the, the, the instructions, they're doing what God's told them to do. The armed men went before the priest who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark, while the priest continued blowing the trumpets. Now, verse 10, Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. Um, and I find this, this interesting because... Um, it makes for a very silent walk, right? So like for, for, for seven days, they're walking in silence. They're circling the enemy walls in silence. They're not to be talking or making noise. And, and, and as I was reflecting on that, it, it, it occurs to me that, um, uh, that if I was a soldier walking around this wall and, and, and I couldn't talk and I couldn't say anything, all I had to think about was this giant wall right next to me, okay? And, and just thinking about that day in and day out, each step, wow, this thing's huge. Wow, this wall is, it keeps, I can, I can still see it. It's, it's, it's high and it's thick and it's, um, you would think that after days of this, the impossibility of victory in their own strength would be impressed upon the hearts of the Israelites because they're walking in silence, meditating on, oh, Lord, if you're not, if you're not here, we're in trouble. Perhaps we can think that maybe as they were walking in silence, they were, maybe they were praying. Maybe they were taking time to pray. Maybe they were taking time to remember and to meditate on the covenant of God, the promises of God, as they were that close to the enemy. And there are times in our lives, church, where, um, where we are so close to a stronghold, we, 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 we're like rubbing shoulders uh, unwillingly, maybe, with the enemy, and, and we realize our own, um, our, the, the, the impossibility of, of us being able to overcome. And sometimes it's in those moments that we need to withdraw into a place of quiet, into a place of silence, drown out the distractions, focus on what God's called us to do, spend time in prayer, meditate on the promises of God. When you feel overwhelmed by the enemy, Silence distractions and meditate on the promises of God. Sometimes that word meditate gives us trouble because of what has come to me in, in our culture. I'm not talking about, you know, this weird Eastern meditation stuff. That's, scripture says to meditate. David says, on your word, I meditate day and night, right? To think about, to dwell on, to pray over, to allow the truths of those things to permeate our thoughts and circulate into our heart. I often think about like a cow chewing its cud, you know, uh, when when I think of myself meditating, that's me. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just chewing. I'm just, you know, uh, dwelling on the promises of God in my, in my heart and in my mind. Uh, and so I picture the Israelites marching around the wall in silence, and they're meditating on God's promises, on God's covenant. Okay, um, let's keep reading. Verse 11. So he had the Ark of the Covenant. So he, he had the Ark of the Lord circle the city, going around it once, then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets. And the armed men went before them. But the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Again, past tense. The walls are still up. The people are still in the city, but God has already given it to them. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. It and all who are in it, only Rahab the harlot shall live. She and all who are with her in the house. Because again, fear led her to wisdom, wisdom to submission, submission to salvation. Because she hid the messengers that we sent. 
And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things. This is an interesting passage. We don't have time to get into it. This week, I believe PV will probably bring this out because it bears consequence for their next battle. So we'll probably read about this next week, I think. Um, she says, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So God's saying, there are certain things that you are not to take for yourself. When you enter the city, when the walls have come tumbling down, and you're, 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 you're coming in and you're overcoming and, and conquering a city, like, this stuff is not for you. This is my stuff. God's like, I don't want you to touch these things. It's going to be bad for you. Not because I'm going to make it bad, but these things are, are, are ultimately going to be a corrupting influence if you take them for yourself. So abstain from those things. So the people shouted, um, and the worship team can come up. So the people shouted when the priest blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat, just as God said. And the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep, and the donkey, and the edge of the sword, with, with the edge of the sword. Um, as we wrap up this chapter, and again, I hope that the, the, the main theme, the main thrust that I want us to, to gather from this is, is, again, are we offering God incomplete obedience? He's, he's offered us and already given us complete victory, complete promises, Are we offering him incomplete obedience in return and therefore only living an incomplete victory? Um, But also I would say that the Israelites never used this strategy again. Have you noticed that? Um, You would think, because of how we think, hey, that worked so well. (laughs) We didn't lose anyone. Not a single person was lost, and and we completely overcame them. We should do that again. (laughs) Let's take that same plan, go to the next city, and do it again. Thank goodness that's not what they said and did, right? But how often is that our reaction? When, when God gives us victory, when God reveals himself, when God comes and, and shows himself in might and power, we copy and paste it like, it's, like that is the key to victory, like, like the battle plan itself was the key to victory. And I'm, and, and I'm going to state the obvious, okay, that the seven-day march was not the key to victory. The trumpets and... And even the Ark of the Covenant, okay, because that was symbolic of God's presence, okay? If God's actual presence had not been there, none, none of those things were the key to victory. The key to victory was the night before, the previous chapter, when Joshua gets alone and seeks the Lord and has a face-to-face encounter with God. And he says, what do you want me to do? Okay, that's the key to victory. God could have told him anything else. God could have said, you know, who knows what, all right? And the outcome would have been the same. And so in our lives, it's not about the battle plan. It's not about the things that worked in the past. It's not about copying and pasting. Here's how God always works. The key to victory is getting along with Jesus. Um, Don't look for another wall to march around in your life after God's given you victory over one. Look for another face-to-face encounter with the Lord and learn from him, lean into him, pursue intimacy, depth of intimacy with him. And out of that will overflow victory upon victory, not just in the future, not just in eternity. We don't have to wait to die to experience eternal life. We can experience eternal life in the here and now. God has promised us that. We don't have to wait to get to heaven. And listen, I can go on and on. Like, heaven is not, heaven itself is not the point. Um, heaven is just icing on the cake, okay? Uh, the promises of God aren't just, oh, one day he's going to come and we get to be in heaven. The promises of God are all wrapped up in Jesus. Heaven is not heaven if Jesus is not there, okay? If all you're hoping for is heaven, you're selling yourself short. Because you don't have to wait to get to heaven to be with Jesus. You can be with him now. And so you can begin to experience eternal living in the here and now. That's what God has for us. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. 
and you have so many good and wonderful and perfect things for your people. Lord, you know. You know our thoughts. You know our frame. You know how easily we are given over to distraction, how easily we are given over to false gods, to things that promise to satisfy and leave us empty and leave us in a dark place. But Lord, you have so much more for us. You've promised us so much more by your word, through your son and by your spirit. Father, would you continue to call us? Would you continue to not to allow us to settle for less than what you have for us? Father, pray you would open our hearts, make us vulnerable, Father, to your spirit, and reveal to us the areas where we are offering you incomplete obedience. Areas where we have grown complacent, where we are way too easily satisfied when you would call us deeper. Father, we thank you for the victories you've already won. We thank you that your promises are true um, and that you go before us, Father, that there's nothing the enemy can do to us unless he deals with you first. Father, you are good. Again, we thank you for all these things. To your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen.